0: There's a couple of things that, a uh, couple of things we need to uh, say before we begin in Revelation chapter 11. Um, we are about to see the, uh, in, in Revelation 11, <clears throat> we're going to see the seventh trumpet uh, being blown. But before we get to that, we're going to see uh, the uh, two visions that John sees. One is the measuring of the temple, and the other is the two witnesses. Now, I know that uh, the two witnesses are uh, a source of, uh, lots of, uh, debate, lots of discussion. Everybody wants to know who the two witnesses are. And, uh, we're going to, we're going to get through that today. We're going to talk about that today, but before we even start that, let me, uh, I'm going to make an admission right here at the beginning. Um, I, I told you way back when we started revelation that, as we get further and further into the book, the symbolism is going to get deeper and and, and deeper, and it's it's going to get uh, it's going to get more difficult to uh, to uh, comprehend to the modern mind, uh, and that's why we went through great pains to um, to be very explicit in explaining how we interpret the symbols and all those kind of things from the very first chapter. Uh, so w- I know that when you uh, I know from uh, the uh, the talking about the the four horsemen and the hundred and forty four Thousand And the things that we've already seen so far, it, when you go labeling uh, a, a podcast episode who are the 144,000 or the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, people tend to uh, jump into the discussion at that point because everybody wants answers to those questions. Um, so if you are just joining us because this is you know, you want to know who the two witnesses are, um, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to the previous podcast, Revelation, because we have built a foundation of how we are approaching the book. We're approaching the book from the Old Testament perspective. The symbols that John uses are far and away, almost exclusively from uh, the uh, the symbolic images we see in the Old Testament prophets and in the Exodus and the, and the tabernacle and things like that. And so, uh we have uh we have built a, a pretty solid foundation so far as to how we are interpreting the book. All that being said, the admission <clears throat> that I'm gonna make is that Revelation chapter eleven is a very Difficult chapter. It's a difficult chapter for everyone. Uh, if you are a futurist who believes that uh, you know, and I explained all these positions at the very beginning, so I hope you've listened to all those. If you're a futurist who believes all of Revelation is is in the future, or the, the vast majority of it, anyways, in the future, uh, you still have problems interpreting the symbols in these texts. Basically, you're just saying you know that that they're you know individuals that are going to be around in the future sometime, and we don't know when, and we don't know where, and we don't know really who, there their speculations and all those kind of things if you are a preterist who believes that the majority of revelation is uh, has taken place in the in the past in the destruction of uh, Jerusalem that's the uh, um, the the avenue that I believe the text is is uh, leading us to uh, to uh, follow uh, you still have problems because really there's no there's no absolute historical evidence of two guys that were in the city of Jerusalem that died and rose again and all those kind of things uh, and and if you're an idealist uh, those who, who believe that the uh, revelations principles that it teaches are applicable um, and should be interpreted in light of the whole of Christian history. So uh, that these, these are not referring to historical events or actual events in the uh, future or in the past, but it's just a principled uh, illustration of the entire entirety of uh, church history, entirety of uh, the age of grace, so to speak. You also have to kind of symbolize these things and see what they what they are. And that goes with the the temple, the measuring of the temple, as well as the two witnesses. So let me say this right off the bat. Um, There are people in every camp who disagree with each other. Uh, There are there are futurists who believe that the two witnesses are literally two people. uh, And there are futurists who believe that the two witnesses are symbolic of a greater reality. (coughs) Excuse me. There, likewise, are preterists who believe that uh, they are literally two people uh, and others that believe they're uh, symbolically, uh, they're symbols for us to uh, understand of the witness of of, uh, uh, the gospel and and what uh, God has spoken. So uh, no matter what camp you find yourself in, what I want you to know, man, I'm having trouble clearing my throat this morning. What I want you to see is that everyone, there are disagreements in every single camp. So what I'm going to uh, offer you today is an exegesis from the text uh, from my personal point of view it's not uh, uh not all preterists would agree with me not all and I, I say preterists i'm really a partial preterist because i believe that uh the the final stages of revelation are in the future um but uh not all futurists agree with each other not all idealists agree with each other so uh there is a lot a lot of debate a lot of discussion a lot of things that uh To be honest, we just don't know. I told you right in the beginning of the study of Revelation, I'm going to tell you how I get to my conclusions. I'm going to illustrate the method by which I come to my conclusions. Uh, You know, I'm not just going to say, you know, red means war without showing you from Scripture where I draw that conclusion from. I'm not going to show you, uh, you know, this means that without showing you how I come to that conclusion. Well, I'm going to do the same thing today, and I'm going to show you uh, how I come to the conclusions that I come to. Um, but before we even get into that, I need you to hear and I need you to understand that this is very difficult. This chapter is very difficult for uh, people of all um The different camps uh, who view Revelation in different ways, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, uh, whether you believe that uh, the futurist is right or the uh, preterist is right or the idealist is right in the way they approach the book. You're going to find within those camps people that disagree and debate and argue about the The uh, identity of the two witnesses about what Revelation 11 means, what the measuring of the temple means, what it's showing us, the principles we're to get be gleaned from that. So uh, all that to say, I'm not saying that, well, this is just so hard we can't interpret it. Uh, That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is we have to be, because it's so difficult and because there's uh, such wide disagreement about the the symbols that we see here, we have to be consistent in our methodology. We can't use one method of uh, discerning Revelation chapter 3, which is the letters to some of the churches, uh, and then a different uh, hermeneutic, a different methodology to uh, try to discern the symbols in Revelation chapter 11. So that being said, the only other thing you need to know is today I'm working without my verses in front of me without... So I may have to look up a few verses to quote them. Please have a pen. Please have your Bible. Please go back. If I give you a reference, a verse reference without quoting the verse, please go back and check me. I have been wrong. I have said... You know, Numbers 15, 19, when I meant Numbers 19, 15. So go back and check, and not only check the verse reference, but check the context that the verse is in, uh, because a verse without context uh, is, is, you know, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Go back and check to make sure that I'm not reading into the verse something that's not there. That's something that Christians, all Christians, not just pastors, teachers, not just preachers, not just Sunday school teachers, but all Christians should uh, regularly engage in when they're doing their bible study take it in its context so check me out today as i'm um, i'm looking at these things so in revelation chapter 11 we're gonna i'm trying to i'm gonna try to get through the whole chapter <clears throat> we're gonna see the measuring of the temple we're gonna see the two witnesses <clears throat> and we're going to see the seventh trumpet finally uh being blown in revelation chapter 11 so there's a lot going on here it says in verse 1 John says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Notice what's being measured, not just the temple. Rise, it says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. And verse two says, "Do not measure the temple." I mean, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. Okay. First thing you need to see is the measuring of the temple, the measuring of Jerusalem, the measuring of the temple. It, it's not something novel. It's not, not something new to John. Not something new to the Book of Revelation. It, it is. Uh, it's a symbol that's been shown. Um, At least twice, maybe more, but at least twice in the Old Testament prophets. In in Zechariah chapter two, verses one through through five. Um, the Zechariah told he, he sees a picture of an of an angel, uh, a messenger measuring the city of Jerusalem. And the reason that angel measures the city of Jerusalem is to show God's promise of protection and His presence there. Remember, Zechariah prophesying at a time when uh, these two men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, uh, Zerubbabel was the leader of uh, the the people of Israel as they were coming back from captivity uh, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And Joshua was the first, this is not the Joshua of the book of Joshua, but this man named Joshua was the first high priest as they were returning to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. And Zechariah is prophesying to tell the people that the the city will be rebuilt, the temple will be rebuilt. And he, he looks forward to the time when Jerusalem will be perfected and God's presence will be there and they won't have to worry about enemies and won't have to worry about things. Zerubbabel uh, goes through uh, lots of hardships as people try to stop the work of the temple. You can see that also uh, paralleled in uh, uh, the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. Uh, but Zechariah uh, It sees uh, one measuring the temple in Zechariah chapter two, uh, verses one through five. And it says in Zechariah, it says, and I lifted my eyes and and saw and behold, a man was with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? He said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the width and what is the length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said, run, say to that young man. And here's the reason. That is going to be measured, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a village, as villages without walls because of the multitude of the people and livestock in it, and I this is God speaking, will be to her a wall of fire around her declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst so we see the measuring there in Zechariah denotes the protection and the presence of God among the people, you can see the same thing in Ezekiel it's really the whole last part of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48 uh, you see, uh, but specifically in chapter 43 42, you see the measuring of the temple there. It promises God's presence will be re- reestablished there in the temple uh, forever. Remember, Ezekiel was a prophet prophesying as uh, he was going into captivity, into the Babylonian captivity. And so, uh, he, he prophesies the, the measuring of the temple. He sees one that's measuring the temple, and it's a promise of protection. It's a promise, uh, that the, it will be established, and it's a promise that God's presence will be there. He's, it's almost like he's, he's marking it off as his territory. God is marking it off, saying, this right here is mine, and nothing will harm it. Nothing will touch it. Um, there is, there's, uh, lots of people that differ about what this, uh, uh, measuring actually uh, entails. And there's people from all different camps that, that, you know, uh, see different things about what it's entailing uh some see the actual preservation of a future jerusalem temple uh some see the preservation of worship itself so we're going to we're going to look at and see what the spiritual reality of these things uh what these things are the first thing that we see is this this is this is not the picture of the whole temple complex uh it's you the word used for temple here is not and uh you know and plus uh the the we see in the very next verse he's saying now i'm not talking about the outer temple you leave that out uh, we'll get to that in a moment but every time every time the word not is used in revelation um, let's take this particular example out, uh, but every other time the word na'as is used in Revelation, it's always referring to the heavenly reality, the heavenly temple, the heavenly temple that is the uh, picture of uh, the, the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle was a picture of the heavenly uh, reality. Uh, every other use of the word "naos" in this book r- refers to that. Um, and, and you also have to remember, the earthly temple, um, it was, um, the best way to put it is that it was a copy of the heavenly reality. So we kind of saw this before in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. But if you look in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 and Hebrews 9 uh, verses 20, verse 24, you'll see that the priests worked in the earthly temple. Uh, they were serving a copy of the, the heavenly temple. Let me just look up Hebrews eight. Uh, chapter nine, or verse nine. It says <clears throat> in He in Hebrews eight, uh, verse nine. No, it's not Hebrews eight eight five. Excuse me, Hebrews eight verse five. It says that they talking about the priests. They serve a copy and a shadow. Of the heavenly things, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, which was the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, "See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain and the same thing the same thing that we see here we see in chapter nine verse thir- verse twenty four uh, of Hebrews we see that it's telling us that for Christ has entered this is hebrews nine twenty four for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, and it says which are copies of the true things, but in heaven into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So what I propose here is that the word Naas and the measuring that's going on is not of the actual physical place in Jerusalem, but of the true worship of God. You can see that in the fact that the the earthly Temple, the Earthly tabernacle uh, what we 're talking about here is not the Temple complex, but just the sanctuary that 's what John is specifically referring to he 's talking about uh, the what we would call the Holy of Holies, the Holy place where the altar was, uh, and where uh, and it says he 's told to measure. Uh, the altar, the holy place, but leave out the outer court, uh, because that's to be given over to the Gentiles. And the word Naas here is used to, to, uh, to describe that inner temple, that inner holy sanctuary, that holy place where God's presence dwelt. Uh, and, and he's talking, he says to measure the, uh, the Naas, the, the temple of God, the, the holy place there, to measure the altar, that's where the sacrifices were made, uh, or the altar of incense, uh, and he's told to measure the worshipers. And so that leads me to believe that he's not specifically denoting this uh, this uh plot of ground where this building is erected in the temple in in, uh, in Jerusalem. He's talking about the the true reality of worship will be protected, will be Preserved. He's told to measure the worshipers there as well. Now, I don't think that John is told to take his measuring rod and go measure the inseam and the jacket size of of all the worshipers there. Uh, He's told to measure the worshipers there because the true worship, the place where God and man meet together, uh, will be protected in the midst of all of this judgment that's going on, in the midst of all of this chaos. The true temple, the true temple. Uh, is preserved and protected. We see that's what measuring means. We saw it in Zechariah. We saw it in Ezekiel. We see it here. But the difference is the temple of God, the quote-unquote temple of God, the naos of God, uh, is um, is not this uh, place that's made with hands. And you can see that throughout the, the New Testament. Uh, John chapter two verses nineteen through twenty-two tells us that Jesus said that his body. Was the true temple, and then you know, and, and if you we later on we're going to see in Revelation chapter twenty one verse twenty two that there's no temple in the new Jerusalem because the Lamb is the temple because God Himself is the temple, and then in all of Paul's letters you got First uh, Corinthians three, First Corinthians six, Second Corinthians six, um, Ephesians chapter two, you see that it is the uh, the the body of Christ, the body of Christ itself that is the temple of god uh, we are the temple of god you are the naas of god you are the temple of the holy spirit and it is there that worship takes place it is there where man meets with god and so you can see all this he's told to cast out the outer court to measure the the temple measure the holy place where the altar and the worshipers are measure that but leave out the outer court now the word for when you read in your English translations, um, almost all of them will say uh, leave out the outer court. It's almost as if the the picture that you're getting is John is told to measure uh, the uh, the inner sanctum, the holy place, the sanctuary of God. Measure that. But just ignore the outer part, you know, ignore the outer courts, ignore the outer things. And and, you know, don't worry about those things. Uh, and I guess that's that's true in the way that John is is uh is a. Uh, told to measure the temple but the word that's used for leave out or uh you know don't measure these things it's ekbale it means to throw out or to cast out uh, most english translations are going to say leave out as if he's called to ignore it but the idea here is that the outer court is being rejected it's, it's being cast out so uh, um, uh, a literal translation would be cast out the outer court or or throw out Uh, means to throw actually to throw out in all kinds of different contexts to throw out the outer court and this is the picture of the outer court of the Gentiles Uh, see only the only the covenant people of God were allowed to pass this point there's uh, archaeological evidence of of, uh, signs that were posted there right at the entrance to the inner court uh, where it says you know through the Gentiles it was a warning that if you pass this point you'll you'll face the penalty of death and so what is it talking about when he says cast out the outer court? This is part of the temple complex. This is where the Gentiles came, uh, the Gentiles who were fearers came to worship God. I mean, this is not just hey, don't worry about the courtyard. You know, that's not important. The temple is what's important. This was part of the temple. It was part of the temple courts. It was part of where the worship of God took place. And so, what does it mean to say I want you to measure the Naas the the temple of God, the te- the sanctuary of God here because it will be protected but to throw out, to cast out uh, the outer court because it is going to be given over, it says, to the Gentiles uh, for 42 months. Now, I want you to see the language shift. A lot of you are thinking, well, uh, you're kind of spiritualizing the the text there when it says to preserve the inner temple uh, but throw out the the outer temple. You're saying that it's a spiritual reality of the true worship of God will be protected. That's kind of spiritualizing the text. But I want you to see the language. Language shift in verse two. Uh, it says the outer court. It says to protect the uh, uh, pr- measure the inner temple, and because it will, you know, we know that it'll be protected, it'll be uh, uh, preserved. God's presence will remain there uh, in the where the true worship of God takes place. It says, but do not measure the court outside the temple. It says, leave that out or cast that out, for it is given over to the nations. Now watch the language shift. And they will trample what? The outer court? The inner court? It said they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Did you see the language shift there? Right there, it it shifts from speaking of the temple and the, 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 the inner and the outer aspects of the temple to the holy city. You cast out the outer extremities because, and this is why you cast them out, he says, because the holy city. The holy city itself is going to be trampled by the Gentiles, by the nations for 42 months. So, excuse me, did you see the language shift there? It shows that the protection of the the true temple is not a protection of the physical temple that's in Jerusalem. Uh, It's not just the court that will will be trampled here. It's the whole city. It's the the whole holy city, including the temple, will be destroyed. And Jesus uses the same language to describe the destruction of Jerusalem in Luke 21, 23, as is used here. Jesus says, and he is specifically, in Luke 21, Matthew 24, Jesus is specifically talking about the destruction of the temple. Not just the city, but the temple. He says, You see these? They were talking about the temple structure, and Jesus says, You see these? Not one stone is going to be left on another. And he starts talking about that. In Luke 21 23, he uses the same language. He says, Jerusalem, the city, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's exactly what John is seeing here. John is told not to measure the court outside the temple, outside where the true worship takes place because this holy city, Will be trampled by the Gentiles by the nations. the The time difference there. He, he, Jesus says to the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, John has shown it is going to be forty two months. Uh, and if you also notice in Luke twenty one, where Jesus says Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, he culminates that teaching in verse thirty two of Luke twenty one that says, "Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place." So what we're see in here is a mixture of the physical and the spiritual in symbolic language that John is using. The true temple protected is not the physical sanctuary. It was indeed destroyed. It was indeed trampled by the Gentiles, just as Jesus prophesied. Uh, but the true worship of God, the people in Christ, uh, they they may worry. that The church right now, Think about this, especially the Jewish Christians, the church that had uh, sprang. They were they were Israel Israelites by birth. They were uh, descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the physical descendants. And they had turned to Christ and become uh, um, recipients of of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And everything they had ever known about God, about God meeting with mankind, about God uh, God's worship, and it it was about to be destroyed. They were, they were going to come. The Romans were going to come and they were going to destroy the temple. They were going to destroy the, 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 the sanctuary. They were going to destroy the city. They were going to destroy biblical Judaism forever. There's no one on the planet today practicing biblical Judaism. No temple to sacrifice in. No priests uh, to make sacrifices for people. No, no altar, no, no incense. No. There is no biblical Judaism on the planet today. All of that was about to be wiped off the face of the earth if you were a Jewish Christian at the time or if you were Christians who, <clears throat> who remember their text of scripture that was read in the churches, even in the churches in Asia Minor and in Gentile lands, the text of scripture that was read each Lord's Day was the Septuagint, which was the Greek Old Testament. Uh, they were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and they saw how those pointed toward Christ. So you can imagine what would be going through your mind as all of this, all of this heritage, all of this history, all of this uh, religion, all of this, uh, these externalities were about to be were about to be uh, swept away and destroyed uh he is giving john is given here by 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 god a revelation to show that the true worship of God, which is in Christ Jesus, which is by the people of God who are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that worship will be protected. It will be sustained. It will uh, outlast all those things. Um, this is, you know, to, if you were a Christian at the time, you you would worry that the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, you know, the mother of the church, herself signals their destruction as well. But this isn't the case. The externalities of of judaism are going to be trampled and destroyed by the gentiles and that holy city was indeed trampled by the gentiles and the question we have as we look at the measurement of the temple and the trampling of the the temple courts uh and the the holy city for 42 months is why 42 months Uh, 42 months is three and a half years uh, if your forty two months is exactly three and a half years, so uh, why is that time period? What is so important about that time period and why how can we how can we ascertain what John is trying to uh, show us what God is showing John in in forty two months uh, the forty two months corresponds with uh, Daniel's prophecy that this destruction will take place for a time, times, and half a time. Uh, in Daniel uh, chapter 12, verse 7, he says, And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be, he's talking about this destruction, this desolation, would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the, listen, the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be fulfilled he's speaking about the destruction of jerusalem right there the shattering of the power of the holy people and it would take place it would it would happen for a time times and half a time it would happen for uh, a year two years and half a year uh, three and a half years 42 months daniel's prophecy is specific about an attack on the on the temple and its fulfillment uh the fulfillment of daniel's uh, prophecy uh where he talks about um, the abomination that causes desolation uh those things is is seen the direct fulfillment is seen in a guy named antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. he was uh a Seleucid king who who uh, you know att- attacked the people you know tried to take over Jerusalem. He ended up taking over the temple. He sacrificed pigs on the altar, set up a a, a a statue of Zeus in the temple, and that's what led to the Maccabean revolt. You ever heard of of Hanukkah and why they celebrate Hanukkah and the the festival of lights and all that? That's to celebrating the victory of Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean revolt against uh, against this king. <clears throat> but Jesus himself. All this happened about 200 years before Christ, uh, but Jesus himself applies the prophecy of the abomination of desolation uh, in, in Matthew 24 to the destruction that's coming of jerusalem by the romans he says in matthew 24 verses 15 through 16 you've heard this before it says therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through daniel the prophet standing in the holy place and he says let the reader understand then those who are in judea must flee to the mountains we've seen that before because the church when uh the first wave of the roman attack um led by uh, 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 Cessius Gallus, I think his name is, that's right off the top of my head, I may have it wrong, uh, when they when that first wave pulled back, you see the church, Eusebius of Caesarea tells us that uh, uh, the church left. They fled fled Jerusalem in obedience to Christ's word. Uh, but he says when you see that abomination of desolation, you know that you need to get out. You need to flee to, to Judea. And, and Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience who would know Daniel's prophecy, who would know what the abomination that causes desolation is. Now Luke, on the other hand, is writing to a predominantly Jewish, uh, Gentile audience, so he he knows right off the bat that his audience is not going to uh, understand uh, these these uh, Jewish prophetic references unless they have uh, been steeped in the Old Testament. So he defines the abomination of desolation in the same speech that Jesus gives in Luke 21, twenty one twenty. Jesus says, this is Jesus, the same speech, Mount of Olives, prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and those who are left in the midst of the city must leave. So he's saying the same thing, but he defines for the Gentiles who don't know about the prophecy of Daniel, wouldn't know. That's why Matthew says, let the reader understand what he's trying to talk about. He defines it as when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. And so what we see here, the period of time, time Times and half a time that Daniel saw as the destruction of the holy people, when the power of the holy people is to be shattered. that's what it says in Daniel 12:7. Uh, that's the period of time uh, that uh, we see uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, taking place, the Gentiles will trample the holy city underfoot for three and a half years, for exactly forty-two months. And to be honest, uh, the 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 main reason that I see he says forty-two months is to to connect what's going on here with the prophecy of Daniel about the destruction, the shattering of the power of the holy people. But there's also a historical correlation in the Jewish war. Uh, let me give you just a few dates. In the fall of uh, 66 AD, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem revolted against Gessius Florus. Uh, he was the, the procreator of Jerusalem at the time. <clears throat> uh, okay, so they revolted against him. Well, then the governor of the, the province of Syria, which included Judea, Jerusalem, and all that, uh, his name was Cestius Gallus. Uh, he attacks the city um, because of this revolt that, that the Jews did in, in 66 AD. And there's we've talked about this before. For some unknown reason, we don't know why, he pulls his troops back, and he pulls back from the city, and that's where uh, the Christians, the Christians left. The Christians fled the city uh, when when that uh, that small respite came in there where he would uh, uh, pull his troops off. But when he was backing away from the city, when he was removing his troops from the city, the Jews in the city gave chase to him, and they captured you know some of his Roman supplies, killed some of his men, that kind of thing. And that inspired the Jews in the city that God was fighting for them, that God was about to deliver Jerusalem from Roman rule. Well, when all of this took place, place. In the spring of 67 A.D., uh, Nero was the emperor. And when all of this came to his attention, Nero commissions his best general, a guy named Vespasian, to mount a full-scale invasion, a full-scale war against Judea and Jerusalem. And, in, and uh, Vespasian comes to the, the sit, comes to the countryside, and he starts taking village after village, town after town. He starts, uh, he starts conquering them, and he starts not only conquering the towns, But driving the people that were rebelling against him, he was driving them toward Jerusalem. And finally, he had them hemmed up inside of Jerusalem. He surrounded the city and laid siege to it. In the spring of sixty seven is when that war uh quote unquote began, is when Vespasian came to the to the land and, and started conquering, started killing, started attacking. Uh, by August slash September, right in there somewhere of seventy AD, the city and the temple were utterly destroyed. So you have spring of sixty seven to uh early fall, late summer, early fall, August September of AD seventy is how many how many years? It's three years and a half years it's exactly 42 months uh right in there it would be at that that time period so you can see there's for me now a lot of people you know talk about different interpretations for me i I don't see how this could not... I don't see how all this could just be coincidence. We're talking about the trampling of the holy city by the Gentiles uh, for 42 months. And what we see here is the Gentiles came into the region and the war lasted for exactly three and a half years, give or take. Uh, And so you see also the culmination of the prophecy that Daniel gives time times times and a half uh, being until the destruction of the holy people till their power is shattered Daniel chapter 12 uh, I can't take this any other way Uh, I can't take this any other way as to understand it to mean uh, he is prophesying the destruction of the city uh, and the, the temple of Jerusalem. And that protection that we saw in the very beginning, the measuring of the temple, the measuring of the Naos is the protection of the true worship of God. The true worship of God, the true temple of God now is Christ's body, is the body of believers. It is we are we who are the temple of God. It is we who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is the, the, the church of, of Jesus Christ. Christ, The body of Christ himself that is uh, where that worship t- takes place and that worship will be uh, protected and God's presence will be there and we see that indeed it was even though Jerusalem, <clears throat> biblical Judaism and uh, the temple itself were wiped off the face of the planet. Um, Christianity thrived. Uh, the the true worship of God thrived. Uh, the worship of God through Christ Jesus uh, ha- thrived after that and, and was distinct from that afterward. So that's the measuring of the temple first two verses. A whole lot there. A whole lot to discuss. A whole lot to debate about and argue about. Um, the From verse 3 to 13 in Revelation, we're going to see uh, the two witnesses and who they are. And what we're going to see is that they, this is going the two witnesses are going to take place um, their ministry their prophesying is going to take place for the same amount of time Um, presumably it's the same period of time that's going on it says and I will grant it's almost like uh, one other thing before I read the words uh, in verse three uh, it's almost like uh, the two witnesses are part of the measuring of the temple because uh, there's no break put in there. It's almost like there's no there's no uh, distinction. It's almost like the measuring of the temple, the trampling of the outer courts, and the two witnesses are all one event because he just goes right into it in verse three. It says at the end of verse two, it says they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. And verse three says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Uh, in the first century, they used a lunar calendar, 30 day calendar, 30 day a month calendar. If if you count up uh, 1260 days guess how many years you get you get three and a half years you get 42 months uh, if a month a lunar calendar that they used was 30 days in a month uh, 30 days in a month 1260 days 42 months uh, it says they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth now the first thing that we're going to see before we even talk about who these two witnesses are, uh, and there's lots of debate about that. We talked about that. First of all, we see that two witnesses is necessary. Um, we remember that Revelation is a prophecy of covenant judgment. Uh, we've seen this over and over again. We saw the language of the throne, uh, the angel that swore an oath, raising his right hand, an oath of the testimony. We've seen the witnesses, the martyrs who who give testimony to the covenant. We've seen the judgments that mirror the covenant judgments that. That were foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, so we see... There, there can be no doubt that this is a covenant uh, judgment, a covenant uh, disputation between those, between God who's made the covenant and those who have broken the covenant uh, but to establish any legal matter, to establish the death penalty, which is what these judgments are culminating in, uh, there had to be, in Old Testament law, there had to be two or three witnesses. You can see that in Numbers thirty-five thirty 30 uh, and Deuteronomy seventeen six. 6 um, there had to be two or three witnesses to give testimony for the death penalty to be ensued and that's why there are two witnesses here god is providing legal testimony in his two witnesses he says i will give authority to who my two witnesses not just two witnesses but my two witnesses and they will prophesy for this amount of time that the the uh, the siege of jerusalem was taking place and they'll do it in 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 sackcloth, uh, clothing, in sackcloth, which was Old Testament symbol for uh, mourning and repentance and all those things. They were prophesying to the people. They were uh, telling the people to repent. They were calling them to repent to God. When when you think of prophecy, a lot of people think of prophecy as just foretelling the future. Hey, you know, your, your redheaded cousin from you know Arkansas is going to come see you and he's going to bring gifts. And, you know, you're going to get married to a lady named Jill. And that's that's not prophecy. Prophecy is when uh, you speak the words of God. In the Old Testament, uh, 90% of the time, the prophets weren't telling the future. Uh, There indeed were lots of times that they did, but 90% of the time they would say, this is what the Lord has said. And they would call the people to repentance. They would call the people back to faith. You are speaking the words of God. That's what prophecy is. And sometimes it does include uh, telling what will happen if the people don't repent and, and so those kind of things so um there's lots of different views about the witnesses and we're going to look at that you know lots of people say that they're literal individuals whether you see them in the past or the future or you see them throughout church history uh, lots of people say see them uh, symbolically representing the ministry of the church throughout the throughout the the age of the church um some see him as the ministry of the church in the end times you know there are there's literally people that hold all kinds of positions in all kinds of different camps about who they are there's some people that say that believe that you know uh, revelation is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that say that the two witnesses symbolically represent the political and religious restraints in the city being cast off during the siege of Jerusalem so what are we to do with all of these different viewpoints I mean you literally can Can find people who will say all kinds of things about who these two witnesses are or will be or were or or whatever how are we to discern for ourselves who they are well he gives us john gives us in in revelation he gives us um Uh, lots of evidence, lots of clues. And what we're going to do is the same thing that we've been doing throughout the book of Revelation. Every time we come upon these symbols, we are going to look at the evidence that he gives us, the symbols that he gives us from the Old Testament. We're going to discern their meaning in the Old Testament context, and then we're going to bring that meaning back into what John is saying to see that he is showing us pictures from the Old Testament to reveal to us who they are, not to hide who they are from us um, the identity of the two witnesses is of course it's the debated topic verse 3 says he's going to give authority to them uh, we've already talked about the 1260 days we've already talked about the they prophesying in in uh, sackcloth which is repentance and calling for repentance and mourning and those kind of things but look at their characteristics in verse 4 it says These are now John is not saying these are like these look like these sound like it says these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, he tells us their characteristics. They are two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know, without a shadow of a doubt that this is a reference to Zechariah chapter four. Uh, it's you can see it in Zechariah chapter four, verse three, verse eleven, verse fourteen. In Zechariah's vision in Zechariah four, remember the context we talked about it a little earlier. Uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua had brought people back uh, in the first wave of people that were coming back to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, those kind of things, reestablish Jerusalem after the uh, after the exile. Um, in Zechariah's vision, uh, he saw a 7 bold lampstand. You know we've seen that before, and he saw two olive trees stand. Beside it, and he asks in Zechariah chapter four. He specifically asks the angel that's showing him the vision. He asks, "Who are? What are these olive trees?" What are they? And the angel tells him in verse 14 of Zechariah 4, it says, Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. So Zechariah 4 tells us that these two anointed ones, if you if you read Zechariah chapter 4, it'll show you that these two anointed ones that God has anointed are indeed Zerubbabel, the leader of the people, and Joshua, the first high priest after the exile, of the people and the point of Zechariah chapter 4 is that he's giving them the the prophecy he's giving them the the um the uh um assurance that the temple will be rebuilt that the city will be rebuilt we, we saw that earlier in Zechariah chapter 2 I'm going to make this a city without walls and I'm going to be a wall of fire around it when we read those uh, the uh, the point of Zechariah's vision is summed up in verse 6 of Zechariah chapter 4 so I would encourage you to go and look at that he says the purpose of the vision he sees this elaborate vision of these lampstands and two olive trees and he sees oil pouring from from uh, uh, a place into the bowls and he is just a big elaborate vision of what this and the angel is explaining to Zechariah what this vision means what these things are and all of those kind of things and the purpose of the vision is for Zechariah to see in verse 6 he says uh, not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord of hosts he's saying this is how z- these two anointed ones will accomplish their task they will accomplish their task of of rebuilding the city of making a city without walls a, a a fulfillment of god's perfect will uh for the holy people he says they won't do it by might they won't do it by power but they'll do it by his spirit so what we see already in the two olive trees these two witnesses in revelation is that it's a parallel to zechariah chapter 4 where we see the two uh, olive trees are the two anointed ones that work by the spirit of god we see that go read zechariah chapter 4 it'll explain it to you um more succinctly Uh, then if you look at verse 5 and 6 in revelation 11 you see what they can do their powers it says and if anyone would harm them fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes if anyone would harm them this is how he is doomed to be killed he says in verse 6 they have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, Uh, first of all the fire that pours from their mouth what did he tell them he was giving them authority to do in the verse previous in verse 3 he said I will give them authority to prophesy and now we see fire coming out of their mouth does this mean they're fire breathing olive trees walking around the city of Jerusalem uh, whether it's in the end times or whether it's in AD 70 Um, I don't think you can hold to that interpretation this is an allusion to Jeremiah 5 verse 14 uh, where it says therefore thus saith the Lord uh, the God of Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth Fire And this people would, and it will consume them. Their prophesying is the word of God that is going forth, this prophecy. They're dressed in sackcloth. They're calling people to repentance. They're prophesying the word of God. It's also, you can see the same kind of thing in Jeremiah 23, verse 28. It says, The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord is not my word like fire declares the lord and like a hammer which shatters a rock so if you saw the main activity of the witnesses is to prophesy. And so that fire that comes and devours them is, is talking about the prophet. They're prophesying judgment upon the land. They're prophesying judgment on the people. They're calling the people to repent. They're calling the people to understand that they have broken covenant and God has broken forth with covenant judgment upon them. Um, and, and we have uh, uh, all kind of evidence to the fact so far in Revelation that we've seen that um, that this is so. That this covenant judgment is one of the one of the central themes in the book of Revelation. But look what their their powers. They have the powers to do. Uh, it's very interesting to me uh, that they they have the power to stop up the rain so it don't rain for the time of their prophesying. How how long did they prophesy? In verse six it says they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. How long did they prophesy for? For 1260 days Go back and look at verse 3 That's exactly 42 months That is exactly three and a half years They have the power to shut up the rains For three and a half years Does that remind you of anybody In the Old Testament Does that remind you of anybody It's an allusion to Elijah Elijah's activity in First Kings chapter 17 Elijah commanded the rain to stop For three and a half years uh, It's the same amount of time As the witnesses prophesying If you look in uh, Luke chapter four verse twenty five. I'll have to look it up here for just a second. Luke uh, twenty four verse five. Uh, it says, uh, "As they no, that's not, that's not it. Luke four verse twenty five. I told you I, I mix those verses verse numbers up all the time. Four verse twenty five. Let's look it up right." Here. But in truth, I tell you, it's Jesus speaking, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land of Israel. And you can see Jesus say the same thing or or, or James say the same thing in James chapter five, verse 17, Elijah shut up the heavens for three and a half years. So we see that this is an Old Testament allusion. One of these witnesses, these witnesses here have the same power that Elijah, the prophet had shut up the heavens for three and a half years. um, And we know that shutting up the rains was also a covenant curse promised in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 and 17. If the people did not keep the covenant. So first Let's hold this in our mind. We have the evidence that these witnesses have the power of the prophet Elijah to shut up the rains. And then secondly, we're told they have the power to turn water to blood and call forth plagues. Now, surely that rings a bell in your Old Testament memory. Who turned the water into blood and called forth plagues on the wicked people that oppressed God's people? It was Moses. And it's a clear allusion to Moses' activity in Exodus. You can look at Exodus chapter 7 where he turned the water into blood. So... Let's take it all together and consider the evidence that John gives us about who these two witnesses are. They are witnesses that prophesy as legal witnesses in the covenant uh, lawsuit that God is bringing forth. Uh, Two witnesses were required, and and that's what we have, two witnesses. They are the anointed ones who operate by the Spirit of God. We see all that from the illusion of olive trees in Zechariah. Their power is linked to Moses and Elijah, who are the, the quintessential example of the law and the prophets, Uh, In the Old Testament, if you uh, see in in Luke chapter nine, verse 31 and Mark chapter nine, verses four through seven, you can see uh, that Moses and Elijah are used as symbols, as symbols of the law. And the prophets over and over again. It was Moses and Elijah that appear with Jesus uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration uh, showing the testimony of the law and the prophets was to Jesus. That's in Luke, Luke chapter nine. If you, if you, uh, um, uh, look at those verses uh, you could see that they, the, Moses and Elijah appear at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and they are speaking about his departure from Jerusalem and that word departure there in Luke is the word Exodus they're speaking about his Exodus from Jerusalem, talking about the crucifixion and so what you see there is you got Jesus as the centerpiece and you got Moses and Elijah on either side of him at the Mount of Transfiguration you have the law and the prophets that speak to that speak to uh to uh to the reality to the reality of uh of, of who Jesus is. Um Moses and the prophets, the the meaning of the scriptures testify to the reality of God's covenant stipulations. Let me show you in Luke chapter sixteen, verse twenty nine. Luke sixteen twenty-nine I'm looking these up on the fly um this is the the um, the story of the rich man and lazarus as, as uh, lazarus is brought into abraham's bosom when he dies the rich man goes into hades when he dies and the rich man looks across and sees lazarus and you know he wants to drop of water on his tongue uh, and it can't be given to him and he calls out to abraham the the man in the rich man in hell in hades calls out to uh, abraham and he says please send someone back to tell my brothers not to come to this place and what is abraham Say back in Luke sixteen verse twenty nine, but Abraham said, "They have Moses and the prophets; let them hear them." And he tells, you know, they won't even believe if anybody is returned from the dead. They have Moses and the prophets to testify, and we can see that uh, these two witnesses, and this is my view, I'm gonna lay it out for you. These two witnesses are the testimony of the old covenant, the law and the prophets, the testimony of uh, of. The Scripture of the Word of God, that Word of God will testify to who Jesus is uh, it'll testify to the it testified to the coming messiah it, it and it also pronounces the covenant judgments upon those who rejected re- reject that Messiah and it calls. Uh, it calls the the people of Jerusalem to repent. It calls the nation to repent of their sin, to turn from their uh, false religion, and to embrace the Messiah, the covenant fulfillment that God Himself has sent. If you uh, you can see that Jesus Himself even says that the Old Testament scriptures. Testify of him. If you look in John 5, verse 39, that's the verse where it says, You believe, you study the scriptures because you believe you have eternal life in him, but the scriptures testify of me. And Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15, uh, foretells Jesus. He says, There's going to be a, God's going to raise a prophet up among you like me, and whatever he says, you listen to him. And then in, in Luke 24, when you see the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to them. They don't know it's Jesus, but he's walking and talking. With them, and when he when he uh, uh, reveals himself in verse twenty seven of Luke twenty four, it says, "Then beginning with Moses, listen, beginning with Moses, and with all the prophets." He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the ta- the sacrifices, the tabernacle, I mean the temple, the altar, uh, the high priest, the ceremonial law, all of those things, everything we see, it pointed forward to Jesus. It pointed forward to the reality that we have in him. And so the law and the prophets are the embodiment of these two witnesses. Now, I, I believe that that is the, the, what is John is trying to relate to. It. But I also understand that it is possible. Listen to me. It is possible that there were two literal witnesses, two physical bodied people or a group of people that was embodied as these witnesses for God that were in the city at the time pronouncing the judgment calling people to repentance uh, but they were doing so from the law and the prophets they were doing some. they were doing so from the the old testament canon they were showing that god's judgment that he had promised in the old testament in the law and in the prophets was now coming to pass had finally come and so those are the those are the two witnesses if you ever wondered who they were. That's who they are. They're Moses and the prophets. They're the two anointed ones of God that work by the spirit of God to call men to repentance, to call men to, to faith. It's the scriptures of God. Now, what you're going to see next in verses 7 through 10 is you're going to see the rejection of those two two witnesses. And in verse 7 and 8 of... Uh, of Revelation chapter eleven, uh, you see it says, and when they when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Uh, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. There can be no doubt as to what city their dead bodies are lying in. It is Jerusalem. It is the city where the Lord was crucified. But notice that it's now called uh, spiritually Sodom, and it's called spiritually Egypt. Now, notice the, f- the first thing it says is that, that these two witnesses are killed. Nothing can harm them until their testimony is finished. The beast from the abyss, who is Apollyon, we saw that before. Uh, you know, Remember the demons that came out of the abyss, the pit? Uh, they had infested the city of Jerusalem. Uh, people went absolutely out of their minds in the city. Go back and listen to those. Uh, we give you examples of people that ate their, you know, a woman that ate her children. People r- raging through the cities, murdering, uh, stealing, looting, pillaging, rioting, all these things going on in the city. Um, The covenant testimony of the law and the prophets, they're pointing to Christ uh, and their pronouncement of judgment. The two witnesses it was discarded and rejected by the people. Their testimony was attacked. It was denied. And those who brought that testimony were persecuted and killed. Um, those who brought the testimony, those who would dare to say, you are in the wrong and you have broken covenant with God. You must repent. You must turn to, uh, to faith in God. You must turn and return to him. Uh, they would be killed. And so what you see here is the rejection of that testimony, the Rejection of Moses and the prophets, the rejection of the law and the prophets. This city, who uh, embodies the 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 holy people's devotion to the word of God in Moses and in the prophets that had come before them, had uh, had now turned against that and 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 were um, wreaking havoc. It says their bodies lie exposed in Jerusalem. Um, we've already, we've already, uh, shown that the city here can be no other than Jerusalem, but I want you to see something you may not pick up in your English translation that in verse eight and the first part of verse nine, the word body is singular. It doesn't say their bodies lie in the, in the, in the street. Let me read it again. It says in verse eight and their dead body singular will lie in the street of the great city that is uh, symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half, this verse nine, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze uh, at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb so at one point uh the the verse eight it is singular verse nine it switches to plural and it shows the singular testimony as well as a a figurative understanding of these witnesses if these were two um individuals if john predominantly very well may have been but if john predominantly wanted to picture two individuals these are two literal people and they will be you know some people say it's elijah and enoch or or whatever that uh, will return at the end if john wanted to picture two literal individuals he would not have used the body singular their dead body singular will lie in the street it could be a corporate thing that they lied together something like that but it's very interesting that it switches from from singular to plural to me but the testimony of the law and the prophets, uh, you see it is disgraced. It's humiliated in the streets, allowed, uh, forbidden to be buried. Uh, this city that's called Sodom. Uh, in, in, incidentally, this is not the first time Jerusalem has ever been called Sodom. It was called Sodom in Isaiah 1 verse 10. It was called Sodom in Ezekiel 16 verses 40 through through 50. Um, and Ezekiel also compared Israel to Egypt in uh, in ezekiel twenty three verse eight so Jerusalem has now become the object of god's judgment. It is aligned with the most wicked cities and nations in the Old Testament Egypt and and Sodom. Uh, these witnesses that are sent uh, to testify to the covenant lawsuit and to call the, the to uh, call to repentance from the judgment of God are killed uh, by the accused by those who are being uh, the recipients of their testimony uh and it's nothing new in matthew twenty three thirty seven, jesus said jerusalem jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her also same thing in stephen's speech when they killed stephen in Acts chapter 7, in verse 51 and 52 in Acts chapter 7, Stephen told them, he said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears uh, are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, Christ, who whose betrayers and murderers you now have become. That was what Stephen told those who were killing him. Uh, so these two are humiliated in the sight these the law and the prophets the testimony of God himself uh, humiliated in the in the in the eyes of these people they f- refused to be barrel, buried uh, people from uh, from many nations looked on notice that it says in verse 9 it says that that it says people from tribes, nations and tongues. These are all those who came into Jerusalem for the Passover festival from the diaspora uh, that were trapped as Rome laid siege to the to Jerusalem. Uh, you can see this. You look at FF F. Bruce's uh, work called Israel and the Nation uh, in verse uh chapter Uh, I think it's it's page 225 that's right Uh, he he talks about the people this happened right at the right time where all these people that had come to Jerusalem were trapped in the the city uh, during the the time of this siege their dead bodies were seen by all of these people that that had come they were all Jews but they were Jews from the diaspora um Now, and also, there could be a figurative way of looking at this that the the world is is watching. I mean, the whole Roman Empire, at this time, this was the conflict. This was the major conflict that was going on. The whole Roman Empire was watching this conflict take place, watching this uh, elite general Vespasian uh, come and and do battle here in, uh, in Judea, and this is right during the siege. Nero actually died, and Vespasian had to leave, and it was, there was two or three Three emperors uh, that, that kind of tried to take the throne and were killed and, or assassinated. And then finally, Vespasian himself became emperor. And Titus, his son, was left in Jerusalem to destroy the city and to take it. Um, the testimony, what you see here is the testimony of God is forsaken. Uh, and it's shame. To be to remain unburied is to be under a curse. You look at Psalm 79, uh, the first five verses of Psalm 79. Uh, you can see it in First Kings 13. You can see it in Jeremiah 8, uh, verses 1. And to to remain unburied is to be under the curse and that was what was going on the people were um were uh well, placing god's word god's testimony god's prophet uh prophecies under under this curse and the desire to be buried in your promised land uh, you can see that through all the old testament all the patriarchs you know take my bones to the promised land take my take my bones to to lie with my fathers and to be buried in the land of the fathers they were not allowed they were not allowed this they were left unburied they were left in the streets um, and their death brings joy to those who dwell on the on the land verse 10 says and those who dwell on the earth, I would say land, the word we've talked about that over and over again, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the land, who, those who dwell on the earth. Um, now those who dwell on the land same phrase exact same terminology is often used to describe Israel Hosea uh, chapter 4 verse 1 Joel chapter 1 verse 2 uh, Joel chapter 2 verse 1 Jeremiah 6:12 Jeremiah ten eighteen. Incidentally, if all if, if you're not writing all these down, it's in the outline. Go to com and you can see it on the Revelation page. There, uh, this outline for chapter uh, uh, eleven is there. Um, Those who dwell on the land is often an Old Testament reference to the people of Israel. Those who dwell on the land, the Promised Land, they rejoice because they believe they had freed themselves from the lo- from the yoke of of uh, God's law from the covenant stipulations they weren't bound by them anymore. They rejected the idea that God's judgment was coming upon them up until the end. They thought God would fight for them and that they were uh, a special people among him and that God would never turn his back on the city. Uh, they they believed that all the way up until they looked around and the city was on fire and it was destroyed by Rome. Uh, they were tormented by the by the truth of of the gospel that came in judgment and salvation where it says turn from your sins. You must embrace the Messiah to be saved. They were tormented in the same way that people today are tormented by the gospel as it goes forth. But what we're going to see as we uh, look at the the end of this uh the section is that god's two witnesses are vindicated uh the The two are resurrected after three and a half days now we've already seen three and a half years. Jesus was in the tomb three days uh there there's a lot of similarities going on with the testimony of Jesus with the testimony of of christ's death his uh his resurrection. God will not allow his testimony to perish. Uh this is it's kind of similar to Ezekiel thirty seven, you know, the valley of dry bones, where prophesying they came to life, and there's another parallel with Jesus being in the tomb three days. But I think the point that we're seeing here is that Jesus fulfilled the testimony of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets that prophesied the, the coming Messiah, the righteous one, that prophesied that the uh the covenant judgments would come upon the people if they did not keep Covenant. That testimony has been vindicated by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to see in a moment that those two witnesses also ascend into heaven. So it's a talking about the Christ's ascension. Uh, the testimony of God is vindicated, uh, they're proved right, and judgment indeed falls upon the land. Um, here it's like Christianity itself—the root meaning, the the the, uh, the the pronouncement of the gospel, which is the testimony and fulfillment of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. It looks like it's being proven false. Uh, you know, mother, the mother city Jerusalem is being judged. The Jews are turning against a, uh, each other and turning against the, the the believers in Christ. But but the true worship, the the testimony of God in the law and the prophets is vindicated in in the resurrection and the ascension and the judgment that is to follow the two ascend to heaven in in verse 12 it says then they heard a loud voice uh they well i I skipped verse 11 but after three and a half days a breath of life from god entered them uh, that's reminiscent of ezekiel 37 and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them come up here and they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them Uh, same thing that we saw in verse 13 and at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the god of heaven so the two ascend and there is an earthquake that destroys part of the city you've seen here now we see judgment is actually being become beginning to rain down upon the city the earthquake is it reminds us of course of Jesus' death there was an earthquake there but but also josephus records a massive earthquake as gallus uh, gallus floris Attacks and then withdraws from the city. There was a huge storm, huge earthquake. He he talks about it in, uh, uh, pardon the pun, biblical proportions. Uh, but. There, there's, no, there's no actual historical evidence of these 7,000 who died. Uh, some people see the 7,000 dead as a reversal of the 7,000 who didn't bow the knee uh, and were faithful to God in Elijah's day. Remember, Elijah said, I'm the only one left, and God said, I have 7,000 that haven't bended the knee. The uh, point is, we just don't know. But the reality that we see is that the survivors, the ones who didn't die, they recognize, finally, at long last, they recognize God's sovereignty. Now, where it says they gave glory to God, uh, this is not a repentance. Uh, This is not a reference to the people's repentance and their faith. Uh, To give glory to God is an Old Testament uh, euphemism. It doesn't always indicate true repentance but uh it's usually just simple acknowledgement of god's sovereignty and power if you look in joshua 7 verse 19 uh, this is where Achan stole some of the 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 valuables from jericho and the people were defeated at ai and uh god said somebody stole something amongst your midst and they cast lots and they were you know the family was taken the clan was taken they finally came to Achan, and when joshua looked at Achan, he said give glory to god and tell him what you tell us what you've done uh the same thing you see in 1 Samuel uh, chapter six uh, and, and plus it's compounded by the context of this verb uh, this verse which says that they were terrified this is not a faithful repentance uh, this is not a turning to God they were terrified because God truly is sovereign he truly is bringing judgment upon them uh, and the phrase God in heaven in, in, old te- in the Old Testament, the phrase God in heaven is always, 100% of the time, used uh, in reference to God's sovereignty over the events of the earth. And so what we're seeing is here is the people finally realize when those two witnesses are vindicated and they, they understand that their testimony they give was the truth of uh, the Messiah, of the truth of the judgment of the covenant curses upon the people. When that testimony goes forth, the people begin to realize, oh, no. Uh, it, it's true after all. And then we have the revelation of the kingdom... Of Christ, uh, the, the I'm sorry if this episode is going long, but I'm trying to speed up. But there's just so much here that needs to be needs to be brought forth. Um, the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Uh, the next thing you see is uh, it says the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Uh, strangely enough, Revelation never tells us when this third woe is. It never tells us this is the third woe. So uh, there's a lot of speculation about when that is. It's it says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And here we are, the final seventh trumpet is blown. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. This is what the voices were saying. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And those voices in heaven saying that. And then in verse 16, you have the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God. They fell on their faces and worshiped God, and they say, basically, the same thing they say we give thanks to you lord god almighty who is and who was notice who is to come is absent right there for you have taken your great power and begun to reign the nations raged but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants the prophets and saints and those who fear your name both small and great and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth they were saying the time has come for you to take your reign. Now, the seventh trumpet is not the final trumpet that we see in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're going to have a lot that goes on, a lot of things that go on after this. Um, but it's the, the, these voices from heaven in verse 15 says, The world has become God's kingdom. Uh, what does this mean? Does that mean God wasn't in control before this? Um, no, what it's talking about is a new nation of God is revealed. The whole world here is a reference to both Jew and Gentile. Everyone, Jew and Gentile. It's not a reference to Antarctica and then you know Alaska. And it's a reference to the whole world now. Not just the people of Israel, not just the Old Covenant people, not just those who are uh, uh, genetically descended from Abraham are the kingdom of God. Now it's Jew and Gentile. Remember the the mystery of God from chapter ten. If you haven't listened to chapter ten, go and listen to that. Uh, the kingdom of God is not just relegated to Israel now. Now the kingdom is the world. The destruction of Jerusalem and the falling of uh, covenant judgment marked uh, a full and final separation of Judaism and Christianity. The whole old covenant system uh, centered around the temple, sacrifices, all this kind of thing. It was destroyed. Uh, and that was the fulfillment of the new covenant. Uh, Jesus spoke of this same thing in Matthew 21, 43. He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, talking to the Jews and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And then when these voices in heaven give testimony that now It is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God. Uh, The 24 elders also proclaim the kingdom. They give thanks to him. They give thanks to him for his kingdom. It says, uh, it says, the one who is, the one who was. Notice that who is to come is not there. Jesus has come in covenant judgment and judgment upon the covenant people. He has been vindicated. It doesn't mean the second coming was accomplished. We're still waiting on that and we'll see that at the end of Revelation. But he has been vindicated in, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the old covenant testimony of his, uh, uh of his coming. And the judgment and the gospel that he brings, uh, he came, was crucified, resurrected, and ascended. But he was, resu- but he was rejected by the covenant people, uh, and now he has uh, ascended to the ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he has begun to reign over all men forever, separating the old. From the new and the elders here give thanks for God's wrath. It says the nations rage uh, against the old covenant people, and the, the the elders are thankful for it. Judgment has finally come; the dead to be judged. Here, let me read it to you. In verse eighteen, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your saints to service the prophets. The time for the dead to be judged. A lot of people mistake that to thinking this is the final judgment where all the dead are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to be seen later on, but that's not what's in view here. The dead to be judged here. When you think of the word judge, you're always thinking negative. You know, it's going to be condemned and all those kind of things. But the reality is uh, he means vindicated. He's talking about those martyrs that have been called. Calling out for justice since chapter 6 in Revelation. The time for them to be vindicated. The time for them to receive their judgment that they have been calling for. All this time has now arrived. And then the elders give thanks uh, for that their that vindication. They, they, the people who've trusted in Christ and believe their testimony is vindicated. He says that the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name. And then we, he, they give thanks for the destroying of those who destroy the land. Uh, This could refer, some people take it to refer to the Jews, those who dwell in the land, who had broke covenant with him and and destroyed the promised land in such an extent that they defiled it. Or some people think it's the Romans themselves, destroyed uh, the destroyers who came and destroyed the land. Uh, That is not uncommon. Now you may be thinking, the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear that is, how could God judge the people that he himself brought to be the rod of his anger? Uh, Be careful when you start making that uh, that association because God did exactly that in Isaiah chapter 10. He said I'm going to bring Assyria against you and they are going to be he calls them an axe that I wield in my hand and then in that same chapter Isaiah chapter 10 he turns around and judges Assyria for their actions because of the intent of their heart. They weren't doing what they were doing because they were being faithful to God somehow they were doing what they were doing because of the wickedness that was in their heart and so God has done that very thing in the past. He has brought a nation against his people and then judged that nation for the activities that they engaged in uh, in their uh, sacking of, the, of, of his people. All that culminates in verse 19 when we see the opening of the true temple and this is where i see at the very beginning of this chapter he's told to measure uh, the holy place he's told to measure the true temple to see it as protected and then at the end of this chapter after the seventh trumpet is blown we see the image we see the picture of this true temple the the heavenly temple that is preserved where true worship takes place in verse 19 it says then god's temple in heaven was open. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. The ark of the covenant was seen in the heavenly temple. There were flashings, lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake and and heavy hail. Now the true temple is now open as God as Christ has taken the kingdom, made Jew and Gentile, the kingdom of God. Now the temple of God opens in heaven. It's open for those who are in Christ, and the ark uh, of the covenant symbolized the presence of God among the people whenever the ark would go before them god 's presence would be before them. It was the mercy seat was on the ark in the holy of Holies, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt, and the ark was lost during the babylonian Babylonian destruction of uh, Jerusalem. but the Jews always held out hope that they would have the ark restored to them and they would be able to bring it into the temple. Well, we see here that the ark is seen in the heavenly temple. The presence of God is no longer in Jerusalem. It's no longer in the holy place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has now been called Sodom and Egypt. Uh, The Jews held out hope that it would return, but it was not going to be in the externalities of the physical temple anymore. God's presence would not be. It is in the heavenly temple that we have access to through Jesus Christ. And then then you see at the end the phenomena associated with the presence of God. We've seen it over and over again. The earthquake, the, the lightnings, the thunder, there's all those things that are associated with the presence of God we've seen all the way back from Mount Sinai where God's presence descended on the mountain are now seen in the heavenly temple are now associated with the true worship of god in the true temple uh, what i see here is the same thing that the writer of hebrews says in writer, in hebrews 12 uh, verses 26 through 29 he says and his voice shook the earth talking about sinai when god would appear to sinai but now he has promised saying yet once more i will shake not only the earth but also the heaven.'" This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things talking of the created temple the things that were built with hands so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain therefore since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe he's showing the difference between the earthly and the fulfillment the earthly and the heavenly when the earthly has passed away and was shaken and removed so that the heavenly fulfillment would be established and then in hebrews 9 24 we read this earlier christ did not enter a holy place made with hands a mere copy of the true one but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god for us so what we're seeing here is a fulfillment of the gospel The true kingdom of God as the remnants of the old covenant are wiped away in judgment and we are ushered into the very throne room of God in Christ Jesus.